0: Welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Every day, decisions are made across Maine that impact our environment, and Mainers play a crucial role as we speak up for climate action, the clear air, clear water, and open spaces that we all love. Come sit down with advocates and experts to discuss some of the most important stories that you need to know, what lies ahead, and hear what you can do about it. Thanks for listening as we share our view the front lines.
1: In early January, Maine announced an 8% increase in final attendance for Maine State Parks in 2021 compared to the previous all-time attendance record in 2020. So to put a finer point on it, that means Maine State Parks welcomed 3.3 million visitors in 2021 compared to 3 million in 2020. Wow, well, I hope you were one of them. And I'm Colin Durant, NRCM's Advocacy Communications Director. And I thought there was no better way to get started than with those stunning statistics, which really reinforce how important our collective work is. Maine's spectacular natural resources are why we live here, we play here, we explore here, and why so many people visit. Uh, They are certainly worth protecting. Now in this episode, we're gonna kick off an exciting new series. I'm happy to share that NRCM Rising leadership team member, Kate Shamba will be a special co-host on the Frontline Voices podcast in 2022. She'll be joining us to bring new and fresh perspectives to the latest news about Maine's environment. Now, as a reminder, NRCM Rising is NRCM's effort to engage young Mainers in environmental advocacy and the NRCM Rising leadership team, of which Kate is a member, helps to lead those efforts. Really getting involved in our advocacy, testifying on bills, writing letters to the editor, hosting events, and of course, go and visit our website if you wanna learn more about how to get involved. Uh, Now, Kate is gonna join us throughout the year from time to time to interview a young environmental leader from Maine to elevate their voices and to share their stories. In this interview, Kate speaks with environmental artists Jordan Kendall Parks, who won a 2020 Brookie Award, honoring young environmental leaders in Maine. Now the nomination and application period for this year's Brookie Awards is now open until February 14th. So if you know a young environmental leader, age 15 to 30, who's making a positive impact, visit brookieawards.org to nominate them or to apply yourself. Now, uh, so before we listen to uh, Jordan and Kate's interview, I wanted to highlight a couple of quick topics in the news that we've been paying attention to, and also uh, just let you know what's coming up. So first, people everywhere were captivated by a special visitor to Maine, a stellar sea eagle. Only a few thousand of these enormous birds are alive, and their range is normally in Eastern Russia. So when this eagle was spotted in Five Islands and then Booth Bay, uh, it was really a reminder for many of us of how amazing the natural world is. Um, Second, Maine's Cobscook Shores was named one of 52 special places in the New York Times travel feature. Our family visited this remote, gorgeous network of conserved lands, and I can tell you firsthand, it's worthy of the recognition. I hope you get a chance to visit it if you haven't already. On a more somber note, scientists at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute confirmed that this past fall was the hottest on record in the Gulf of Maine, this fall is what was the second warmest summer of all time. And it's yet more science that reinforces the need for climate action now. And everyone's looking to Congress to take to act on climate um, quickly uh, and no more delays. Uh, so we're hoping to see action from Congress on, on climate as soon as possible. Uh, closer to home here in Maine, the legislative session uh, is underway, but it's really going to soon start heating up for several, several of our priority bills. On January 24th, a legislative committee will hold a work session on the bill that we're supporting to ban out-of-state waste uh, from being dumped in the state-owned juniper landfill, Uh, and on the following day, January 25th, there'll be a hearing for a bill that we're really excited about to expand the state's ecological reserve system. This system was originally created to preserve a representative sample of habitats across Maine and to protect threatened or endangered species. They play a critical role in helping researchers better understand how nature works. Uh, They protect some really stunning habitat like old growth forest. And again, um, also are a home for some of Maine's most unique and threatened species so as we look to uh, uh, conserve that as many as habitats as possible across Maine um, this bill would raise uh, uh, eliminate a cap uh, on the amount of lands that we can include in the state's ecological reserve system so we certainly hope that that'll move forward Uh, well those are my quick updates and with that I'm now gonna hand it over to Kate and Jordan for what was a really fascinating conversation about environment and art.
0: Hi, Jordan. Thank you so much for joining me today and talking about all of the fantastic projects that you have done and your experience with the Brookie Awards.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: So you focused on your project being about art and its integration with nature and being an environmental artist. What does that mean?
2: Um, to me, I guess being an environmental artist, um, you know, I honestly learned a lot about what that meant to me in this whole process. Um, I didn't really consider myself an environmentalist before the whole Brookie process even though I was making art that was inspired by nature or literally placed in nature and intended to encourage people to interact with nature but now (laughs) I see that I am an environmentalist and um, yeah I guess I'm just really grateful for that. You were
0: saying earlier to me how you felt that there was a connection between art and nature that you didn't fully realize until the Brookie Awards. Can you tell me about that journey of thought and how you came to the conclusion that you did?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I I realized a lot of this while I was working as a sea kayak guide in Casco Bay and I was often landing on a lot of these islands with kids, with adults and you know, just other people and sharing sort of just like how wonderful they are. And, you know, so many of the islands, you can look back and see Portland and see like where you've come from. But from Portland, it also looks so, so far away and like hard to get to. So while I was working as a sea kayak guide, I was just kind of wondering how I could get people to explore the islands that maybe wouldn't be as naturally inclined to do so. Sorry, my voice is getting a little (laughs) scratchy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so just seeing the islands, I wanted to, I guess, open up possibilities for people that might not be so inclined to get out there. Um, And I wanted to kind of mesh the two worlds of art and the outdoors. So I kind of like drew that connection between the two and just like thought up this kind of crazy idea of like, what if they're like when you're walking the trails, there were art installations out here and you could interact with both at the same time, but they told a story of the history of the islands, the history of like Casco Bay and our human impact on the environment, as well as like just kind of getting to see art in an unexpected place.
0: That is a wonderful and ambitious <laughs>
2: project. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely felt a little crazy at times. Um especially when I was writing the first proposal for Surface First Tilts West and pitching it to the Kindling Fund, Food Space Gallery, and even, you know, talking to the Main Island Trail Association. I kind of didn't think people would say yes. Um, but people were into it, so that was cool.
0: So now you have presented at least two art exhibitions. The first called Surface Tilt. The first called Surface First Tilt West mm-hmm. in 2017 and Windward in 2019. What was your vision in what you wanted to accomplish through creating those and presenting your art in that way?
2: Um, again, it was just to see art in like a new new form and an outdoor form that was interactive. Um, I think, you know, I went to art school and a lot of the goals there are like, have gallery shows and like see your art in a museum or like in a prestigious place and those feel often like really inaccessible um even just to like get into those places often it's like upwards of 30 dollars a ticket um so just wanting to see art in like a new way in a free <laughs> way um so like you know surface for still stress was a little harder um, to get to but through the Kindling Fund I like was able to provide free boat rides out to the islands and um, also had like a full guide on how to take the ferry out there and a ferry ticket cost $12 round trip so um, that's like cheaper than going to a museum and you get a full day experience out of viewing art outside. Um, so that was kind of the vision was just to like change how we see and interact with art and simultaneously, like, interact with the outdoors and, and just have a little adventure.
0: So for those people who have not seen these fantastic pieces of art and did not attend these exhibits, what was the experience of Surface First Tilt West?
2: <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. And I think, um, you know, it kind of depended on the day. Like, for me, <laughs> there were multiple kind of hilarious boat rides with various people to get out to the island, whether that was like me taking a kayak out there with (laughs) other artists to just like explore or um, actually installing the pieces out there. Um, I had kind of like became with a couple, became friends with a couple um, boat captains (laughs) on the bay and had them on speed dial for when I needed to get out to the island um and then like um had a friend who he actually got a boat while I was working on the project so he helped me a couple of times um but I just I don't know like early on it was a lot of like adventuring with a couple of people to get out there and then setting it up but then once it was up um you know, people could come and go as they pleased. And I had a guest book that was there. And um, there's also the Mita guest book. So we had a combination of like stories of people just going to see the, see the art and then being like, oh, it was so nice to walk the trails. And um, people would say they had no idea that they would find art kind of placed along the trails and that it was a really nice surprise. Um so yeah, I think it depended on the day, whether you were going by ferry on your own and walking across the sandbar or spending the night on Little Chebag or going with me the day we had the opening and taking a boat ride and like having snacks on the island and doing the walk with me.
0: How many islands did you put our installations on?
2: Just one, just Little Shebagg. Um I was really drawn to that island because you can get there By the ferry. So, I wanted it to be something that, like, I wasn't, I didn't always have to go with people for them to get there. And you didn't have to have your own boat to get there. Like, I really wanted it to be easy to find and easy to experience. So, obviously, there's a sandbar that you have to cross that is tide dependent. So, I made sure that people knew and had access to tide charts and that you had about four hours. (laughs) to like get across and get back and um to my knowledge no one got stuck on the island but if they did (laughs) i hope they had a good time overnight
0: (laughs) a fully immersive experience
2: (laughs) exactly i hope they were prepared um but yeah it was just that island and um i had been there a bunch and talked with the caretaker at the time um and then ended up connecting with Maida and it just felt like the most appropriate and accessible
0: that's amazing. And so, your second exhibition was Windward, which is very cool. You designed art on sails of sailboats and then had the sailboats sail around. Is that correct?
2: That is correct, yeah. So, um, I've been working at Sail Maine for a few years, and you know, we every once in a while you kind of turn over the old sails that are on the boats and we were kind of figuring out what to do with the, like this whole set of sales and we were just wondering like I kind of asked like can we just have artists paint on them and have an exhibition and people again just said yes <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> um, so I put out a call for art um, similar to what I did with Surface First, tilts West just kind of You know, we're accepting applications for artists and anyone that wants to get involved will provide basically a massive canvas and surface for doing whatever you want on it. And um, we're able to give a stipend to artists. So it was awesome. The first one, I actually was able to run two. I ran another one last summer um, and am planning to do a third this summer. Um, And yeah, we... It was really cool to just see, like, how local artists wanted to get involved and um, how visible the boats were, even just from the Eastern Prom. I think it was even more of, like, what I was hoping to get out of Surface First Tilt's West with, like, being able to see art in the outdoors because of how visible the boats were from, like, so many points in, in Casco Bay. Like, you could see them from the land. You could see them from even, like... Macworth Island like all over the place and um, that was just like really cool to hear people saying like I saw the sails and I was like in South Portland or <laughs> I was like yeah. on the ferry which just felt really cool.
0: How many sails have been painted at this point?
2: Um, so we had I think five artists the first year and then we had 10 this last year so about 15 sails are painted right now. That's quite the fleet. Yeah, <laughs> definitely.
0: Are they? Do they parade around just the once every year now, or do they parade around more often?
2: Um, this last summer they only paraded around a couple of times. We had like a bigger um, exhibition of the sails, like a one big day that we had them sailing around. And they could be seen every once in a while, but the first summer that we had the sales up, you know, it was pre-COVID, and we had this thing called social sales, where we every Friday night, Sailmeen would just have like it was like twenty-five dollars. You could just like get on a sailboat, not have to have any experience, and just sail around. And so we would put the art sales on the boats every Friday, so they were visible at like more more times. Um, in 2019. But yeah, this past summer, it was just like one or two times. Um, But I have some plans. I'm scheming up some ways, like, especially now that we have um, so many sales, I want to like have a big exhibition where they're actually on land and people can kind of walk through them and and see. So we've kind of been talking about that (laughs) for the future
0: that'd be very cool i would love to see that
2: yeah me too honestly i think it'd be i mean the sales are huge like i don't know the exact amount of feet i probably should but like when you see them on the ground or when you're actually looking up at them they're like at least 20 25 feet tall so yeah so for people
0: who are not people who for people who are familiar with sailboats, what kind of boat do these belong to? Are these 420s or are these?
2: It's a J-22. So it's a 22-foot sailboat. It fits about four people comfortably. Um, has a full keel um, underneath the boat. And if you're looking out in Casco Bay on any given day in the summer, you will likely see a sailman J-22 sailing around. <laughs>
0: I know that I have seen them for sure.
2: <laughs> have you seen the art sales? I have
0: not like, seen the art sales, but I cool. am very excited to keep my eyes open this summer. Yeah. <laughs> um, for people who are scouting out and looking for these sales, what time of year should they be looking?
2: I would say like mid-summer to the end, like late July to August. We usually wait until the end of the summer and then go into the fall a little bit.
0: Now I've gotten a little bit off track because I'm very excited about the sales, <laughs> <laughs> but circling back to the Brookie Awards, what did it mean for you
2: to win the Brookie Award? Uh, what it meant for me, I think when I like saw that email, I it just like felt really, I felt honored. Um, I think, you know, I associated the term like environmentalist and like the award for an environmentalist as someone who is like, you know, a policymaker and like a changemaker in that sense. And is like, you know, writing things that are impacting us on such a positive level. And I just didn't know that my art could really have that, like be seen in the same light. So it just, it felt like really exciting and humbling. And I was just so grateful. Um, And I think even if I like weren't recognized as a Brookie, like the whole process was really eye opening for me. And just that like my friend who nominated me and the people that I talked to along the way uh, just really helps me see my art in that way for myself, you know, and just to like, kind of want to keep pushing forward in what I'm doing.
0: That's wonderful. Um, So as someone who is now labeled as an environmental artist, (laughs) (laughs) what are some environmental ideas or issues that you focus on when you create your art?
2: Um, I focus a lot on, I think one, just like caring for, the environment and for each other, um, you know, whether that's specific to a, a certain environmental or social justice movement or, you know, any topic like that, I think, I, yeah, I just am always thinking about like how we can do better. And <laughs> In many ways, like, I think just kindness is something that surfaces in, like, what I want to be seen. And, you know, sometimes that doesn't exactly translate in my art, so to say, as just, like, in how I'm communicating with people that I'm collaborating with and, like, what I want the actual experience of art making to be.
0: What are some highlights that you've learned throughout all your work the past handful of years?
2: Um, I think I have appreciated, like, seeing something to that scale, like, from beginning to end. I am, like, a, I'm known for, like, starting a lot of projects and not finishing them and also having a lot of ideas. So, um, doing these, and I think, like, getting other people involved holds me accountable in a way that's really important. You know, I'm not just, like, not I'm not able to not finish it because there are other people that are relying on it and they're involved too. So um, that's been a really big source of my motivation is just to like see things from beginning to end and know that like there are going to be unexpected challenges and you kind of just have to like roll with them and figure it out and they end up being really fun and we learn so much from those like random things that happen. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I've also learned like, no idea is too out there and too. Yeah, like, I think as long as you believe in something and like know where to look for support things should be possible like that's what i want people to to feel i know it's not always thanks case, for listening to
0: Maine environment frontline voices if you enjoyed this episode you can subscribe to our podcast or leave a review on for apple sure. podcasts spotify well, google you so podcasts, much for and podcasts, and several other podcasts and answering my many questions since 1959 and, um, nrcm doing has what been you tapping do. into the power of the main people yeah, thank
2: you, Kate. science nice and chat. the law
0: to protect and enhance the nature of maine to learn more about our work visit nrcm.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at NRCM Environment.